All right, everybody, welcome back. Episode number 16 on the Roses and Randomly podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett. Joining me, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. We have a packed episode today. I was thinking, Joe, 16, if we take, you know, four four weeks per month, we've been doing this now for about four months, give or take a little bit. And I was just thinking that's a fairly consistent thing for for us to, to do, so... We give ourselves a little bit of a little pat in the back for that one. This has been going yeah. along pretty well. Um, you know, Joe and I try to keep an eye on different metrics. You know, we are our, our uh, Twitter engagements, our website views, everything else. And I uh, just want to always begin every episode by thanking the fans for sharing the content, for, for uh, accessing the content. Um, we really do appreciate that as always. Find us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric and also the website www.rosesandrhetoric.com. And then lastly, we also post these videos, of course, on our website, but then also on our YouTube channel, again, roses and rhetoric. So be sure to check everything out. Um, articles, uh, videos, we also do it on uh, just the audio version. If you're you know, driving and you can't watch the video, if you don't want to have your phone sitting in your steering wheel and uh, you know, casually peeking up for uh, traffic. Remember that we are on Spotify as well. And then also the auto files are on the website also. But with that little housekeeping, Joe, let's get started on today's episode. So I have a handful of things I want to open up talking about. And the first I want to talk about is, uh, remember last week we were talking about kind of this idea that, um, you know, kids trying to become famous on the internet or through some kind of social media mechanism or any other number of ways of making a ton of money on the internet very quickly, but that might not be a bad impulse, that there might be some bad outcomes, but that the impulse itself was was fairly healthy and kind of was showing a, a certain level of entrepreneurship from, the, from those kids. I wanted to explain, actually, I meant to do this last episode, but I wanted to explain where I first got that idea from. It was from an article that I saw at a friend's house, probably back when we were in high school, about esports, it was kind of right around the time where esports were kind of first coming on the scene. And this dad wrote an article that was titled something along the lines of, I should have told my kids to play more video games. And the idea kind of making fun of the parents who were telling their kids, you know, don't play video games, study hard, go to school. And it sounds basically saying, look, some of these kids are making a ton of money playing video games. I don't know why it was so, you know, tricked on my kids in, in some sense. So I wanted to talk a little bit about esports and kind of where you think, I, I, I know I kind of have my own opinion on this, but talk a little bit about what you see as the, the future of esports, if that's a topic that you, that you think about frequently. Um, I'll just say for myself before turning over for you, I'm, I'm a huge fan of any spectacle of human uh, excellence, and I absolutely consider esports to be one of those. Uh, I know both you and I played a fair amount of Halo back in our day, and um, I think all of us are blown away when we see somebody who's truly masterful at some of these games. It's just fun to watch. And so I, for me, I think esports are a lot of fun. And I just was thinking back to that article, again, this idea of people finding unique ways of essentially utilizing their talents, that esports is this new thing that gives people with a, with a certain talent stack, to borrow a Scott Adams phrase, a talent stack, that before video games, maybe that talent stack wasn't useful. But now this post video game world, it's actually extraordinarily valuable and fun to watch. Yeah, I remember watching a documentary not too long ago, just documenting the the uh, growth of esports and how it's come to this giant industry now, where it's uh, essentially in competition with the Super Bowl for the amount of viewership that people see it. So it's like a big deal out there. And 
comparing esports to actual sports for kids that are growing up, I mean, that's a good question because it seems like the way things are trending is that we're trending away from in-person contact and so forth. So with esports, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's all online. I guess you're still forming like relationships with people through your headset and talking to people and planning and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, compared to at least 10, 20 years ago, I think that it's much more acceptable for kids and useful for them to, to play video games today, much more so than ever. And I, I think one of the nice things about, and you touched on this, about this idea of it being over the internet is that this is one of maybe the the first sports. I mean, I, I don't know that much about sports history, but I would imagine that it's one of the first sports to really have a very short time period between becoming a truly global phenomena that you can literally play sports with people all over the world. And as far as like when the first video game came onto the scene, when that became possible, it wasn't that long. I mean, the internet and internet gaming, I think was around at least not when it, games first came out but it seems like there wasn't that much of a gap between between that and online play and so i to me what's interesting too is that you have an ability to form these extremely global communities with people and play with each other and you know play these these video games and it's entertaining i i like watching some of it i don't watch esports that much but i mean i i certainly you know one thing that i do watch more so than esports are people that do speed runs with video games i find that to be pretty interesting because you're watching somebody play pokemon and you're thinking, okay, well, when I played Pokemon, it took me about four months to, to beat the whole game. I wonder how long it took them to beat the whole game in like, oh, 30 seconds. And you're thinking, well, how is that even possible? And you watch them play like red version and like they pick Charmander. And then the next thing they're like somehow hacking into the game and like not even playing anymore. And like, what the hell is this? And so I just like when people find ways of exploring things and kind of finding these, these, these esoteric worlds that exist in these video games and these speedruns show basically, uh, at least from my point of view, what they show is just this, uh, how people create these worlds and they have all of these unknown consequences that when these programmers made these programmable worlds, they didn't realize they were creating ways for, for programmers or for these speedrunners who are basically just like hackers to like somehow navigate around and to find all these weird things of doing. And you're watching like, since, like what the hell is this? I, I just, to me, that's really fun to watch. And, um, Again, one of those things where that talent stack for those people wouldn't have been very useful not too long ago. But now we're in this world of you know, people making money off of Twitch and off of other online viewing and off of streaming. And essentially by just having this unique combination of being, of being entertaining and being technically savvy, all of a sudden they have access to these huge audiences and they're making tons of money. And I would imagine doing something that they enjoy doing. And I, I find that to be an extremely positive development that the internet has brought us. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. You got you got to wonder that how many of those people are making money compared to how many people are trying to, you know, I, if I had to guess, it would probably be pretty comparable to like making it big in sports, you know? Yeah, Being I would think so. <laughs> I would imagine it's a, a good situation of where like the top 1% makes all the money and everybody else is just kind of like trying to make something. But Nonetheless, I am glad that even for the for the few people who are able to make money doing it, my my hat goes off to them and uh, very good. I um, I think it's really quite fun to watch, and um, I think it's a, a, another manifestation of the way in which modern technology has, I think, really given people on an individual level a way to utilize their talents that 
I don't think would have been possible not too long ago. And I know this is thing that you and I have talked about before, but I really think it's true. I mean, I, I don't think that we have fully come to terms with how the internet is going to change how people live, how we make money, how we interact with one another. I mean, we're still living through that right now, but in, in, in some ways it, it, it I, it's like we haven't even scratched the surface really of what the internet gives people abilities to do that. If you have a skill or a, or whatever thing that a million people are willing to pay you $1 for the internet gives you a way to become a millionaire. I mean, that to me, that's mind boggling. Um, and it's only made possible by these huge distributed networks of people that is the internet. Yeah. And we're in a especially unique position here where we can test the internet's capabilities because of all the lockdowns and, and whatnot that are forcing people to use the internet for things that they never thought they could in the past. So yeah, it's given a a society, just a big crash course on, on uh, learning what this tool can really offer. Yeah, and just another good example of how society does not move in slow, smooth, steady, no nonsense. It moves in these jumps, and coronavirus is one of those jumps. That all of these things that would have taken much longer to happen, boom. Now work remote is going to be this thing that probably every major company really considers making a permanent situation. That would have been unthinkable in just normal day-to-day 2019 world. That would have been a joke. 2020, yeah. it's on probably the, every Fortune 500 probably has a department running the test on, is this viable? And some of them are going to say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the default assumption when looking for a job that it's remote. Like they'll have to physically specify explicitly saying that, oh, this is not a remote job. Right. I think you'll see that pretty soon. Oh, I ha- you have to. And this will make this whole new, I mean, you're already seeing it, obviously people moving from expensive cities and states to cheaper cities and states working remotely hubbed in other expensive areas. I mean, that phenomena is only going to become, I think more prevalent and we're going to give people, I mean, in some ways you can imagine it actually being a, maybe even a, a step backwards in the sense that at least before when you had to live in the same place, you had to live in a city that maybe had a different uh, perspective, you know, whether political or cultural than your own, but now you can essentially live where you want to live, which will probably be around people that you want to live by because they're similar to you. And it may be in a way that kind of takes away from one of those pressures that we had before of having to encounter uh, other people and learn to see how other people, even though they're different are still humans like us and that there's these different opinions in a way working remotely may give us another ability to form a thought bubble or a culture bubble around us that previously working had kind of taken away at least a little bit. Yeah. I I do have some reservations about too much dependence on the internet. For example, like if everyone just speak their entire lives of the majority of people on the earth start becoming dependent on the internet, then uh, what if the internet goes away sometime, you know? Like I imagine, especially after reading through Phil's book, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, uh, he highlighted some of the vulnerabilities of the power system. And I would imagine that the internet is comparable to the power system in terms of how it's structured and having weak points. And that, I mean, that would be devastating to all of humanity if we lost the internet for some amount of time. I... Agree. I think of, uh, you know, I remember one time we had uh, a, a friend of ours in the hospital 
And I remember talking with one of the doctors about Google and they're like, oh, we use Google all the time. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> that's not what I want to hear from, uh, from medical professionals. But I mean, in, in some sense, you, you do want people to use new technology, but at the same time, it's like you need to have the reservation of skills for that technology when it isn't present with us. And you know, I, I just think back, you know, you and I were both engineers. I, I, could you imagine actually solving a differential equation by hand for something? I mean, it will come to a stop. Be like, what, what, excuse, separation of what? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not doing that. Uh, and I always, I always think back in the day, whether they would solve equations, they would have books that would just give you the answer. Like you would find an equation and you would go to the book and the book would say, if the equation looks like this, this is the answer. And that was how they did it. That was, it was using tables for like integrals and stuff. That was just how they did it. Yeah. And I would think it's like, if I actually had to use one of those, I would be done for. I mean, luckily my job has nothing to do with calculus. I mean, that's for the benefit of the all of humanity. But I mean, if it did, we would be up a, up a creek. I'll tell you that right now. And it would be even more up a creek if that was the world we were in and we did not have internet to help us. <laughs> Yeah, I always think back to to teachers in middle school saying that you got to learn this because you're not you're never going to have a calculator in your pocket all the time. Yeah, yes. Fast forward five years and iPhone comes out and that's everyone has a calculator. I don't know if I showed this before. So my my dad's also an engineer and uh, I'm sometime, I don't know, back in the day, actually in the the 80s when he was still doing schoolwork, he bought a calculator and this is it right here. This is an old HP calculator. Oh, it, it has a, a different input, right? It's so, like, it's a I, yeah, uh, reverse Polish, I think is what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, so this one does not have that input, but I think you can make it so that it does. I think you can kind of go back and forth. But um, this little bad boy still works, and it's like, uh, what is that, 40-something years old? Is this you got, any, you got any sweet, sweet games on there? Oh, I did this one where I type in Britney Spears' uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I remember I, on my TI-83 or 4, I had Doom on my, on my calculator. And I just thought how cool that was that somebody programmed that. And then I got like a C in algebra, so I felt like an idiot. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. We're all, we're, all, we're all growing up, yeah. But, um, okay, so that was, I wanted to talk about esports, actually. And I, I should have mentioned that article last episode. Uh, that kind of what got me on that kick about, you know, I had to be taught to kids about the internet and about this balance. And I, I'm not trying to harp on parents here, but I'm saying there is an interesting balance between, you know, this, this desire for get rich quick schemes, I don't think is entirely a bad impulse. I guess that's my main takeaway, that it can have bad outcomes. And I certainly wouldn't encourage anybody to put all their eggs in one basket. I wouldn't encourage them to do anything that could be potentially, you know, super embarrassing or something. I think we all know the obvious examples of things I wouldn't want people in their early life to be doing, but at the same time, I do think it's it's interesting and I think worthwhile for people to think how how might I do something different? And I don't think people should just assume, you know, you, you were talking about this last episode, but it, it's very much the, the idea of, of Peter Till talking about people just assuming as the default position, picking these tracked lives. You know, you go to school to, be, to get a degree, to go to medical school or to law school or engineering, you know, whatever it is that people just default to that too soon and too early and that it's worthwhile for all of us to consider, especially I would argue in the context of the internet and of widely available computing, uh, computing power and cell phones, et cetera, all these technologies, how might you surround yourself with technology and other people to 
possibly do something different? And I think that's a worthwhile question for all of us to be asking. And I don't think it means that we have to be naive and think that it's going to come overnight or anything like that. But I don't think we should block our mind to it and think, oh, that's just a pipe dream. I will. Don't, don't limit yourself. Don't, don't do that. Um, consider all the options. And I think uh, for many people considering uh, ways of just doing something different is, is a worthwhile exercise uh, for all of us, it, I would, it, including people who are, who are still in school or are younger or whatever it may be. Yeah, doing something different. So this, this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, I've listening to people like, like Tim Ferriss or Scott Adams, they, they've been making claims like, like Scott Adams will say that only one third of the, of the population has a sense of humor, like actually thinks things are funny and like can engage in funny things. Hopefully they're all watching the Roses Rhetoric podcast. Follow us at Twitter at Roses underscore Rhetoric. And anyways, back to you. (laughs) So what that means, but what that means is that just one third of the people, no matter how funny a joke is or how funny something is or how appealing is just, they're just not going to have it. Tim Ferriss makes the distinguishment between uh, there being two different types of people. Um, and the, the example he gives is in a scenario of like when you encounter someone that's better at something than you or more experienced with something than you. Um, the first type of people will start vilifying the person that's superior at whatever skill and coming up with reasons in their mind why it doesn't matter that they're better. And then that type of person really never gets to that next level um, compared to the second type of person who actually idolizes in a sense the the person with more skill and actually wants to learn and develop their own skills and follow their path and get learn what they can from them so it what's your take on there being just inherently different types of people in the world some types that will never change how do you factor that into uh, encouragement of people to do certain things like like you said to be different yeah. How, how do you draw the line or how do you know you're trying too hard to do that or not hard enough? Or That's a really good question. I would say that um, I always, always and I, I, let me, let me answer your question by critiquing myself and saying that the times in my life that I look back on that I am the most upset with myself for the most part are times when I wasn't encouraging of something that I look back on times where I was dismissive or kind of, you know, negative or whatever. And those are the times that I look back on that I, I'm the most upset with myself, that I feel like I did the most disservice to somebody. Um, I always want to find myself being this abundant source of inspiration. That's how I want to come across to people. I don't think I have historically come across that way. There's probably some friends listening that's going like, you? <laughs> I don't know. But um, I mean, to me, that's that's been kind of the biggest shift that I'm trying to incorporate into my own self is always being encouraging, always trying to help people realize their fullest potential. And so in a sense, what I would say is that if there's two types of people or 10 types of people, and they're all kind of on this spectrum of being open to inspiration or not being open to inspiration, I'd say the biggest thing is this, realize that the person you are today you will survive being wrong and you will survive getting better. That's a hard thing, I think, to internalize. I mean, I, I say this as somebody who has struggled with being, on, depending on the circumstance, the wrong type of person. But the biggest thing is accepting that you can actually go through the experience of being bad at something and then becoming good at it and survive. It's kind of this, 
in, in a way, it's almost separating your, yourself from that process. Nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to be inferior. And yet we find all the time that when we open ourselves up to those experiences of being wrong and then learning, we feel better about ourselves after the fact. This is a point that, that Sam Harris makes about learning something new is that all of us all the time struggle so hard to hold on to our, to our preconceived notions. And then when we allow ourselves to be corrected, we actually feel better afterwards. Like we, we, are, we, we feel better that we have corrected a wrong belief or a wrong assumption or something. And so as far as where I would draw the line, I would say that I, I probably wouldn't draw the line, that I, I don't think that I would ever write somebody off as being the wrong type of person and that I would always just want to find myself encouraging people to undertake the, the lifelong challenge of opening themselves up to the idea that who they are today is not who they have to be tomorrow. That would be the main thing, I think, to tell people. And I think that's a good mindset. That's a good response. I've been thinking a lot recently about certain people, certain friends, like people in my friend groups and of the people that I really like, I was like, I was thinking like, why do I like these people? And then I took a few examples and I, I realized that they're just, they're never negative. They're never dismissive about anything. They're always like positive attitude, talking people up and just how, how much of a silent power that is in, in, in getting you where you want to go. And you also talked about uh, being able to embrace being bad at something, like not being good at something. And that's something that I also, I heard a quote somewhere from Twitter that said something like that's one skill that, that successful people, all successful people have is that they are comfortable being bad at something. Cause the, the odds of you picking the right industry or the right project or the right, right. thing like from the get-go and never trying anything else and becoming successful from that one thing. I mean, unless you're like Michael Jordan or like some athlete or something. Right. It's or Elon Musk or, you know, probably Neil deGrasse Tyson or some super genius or something who knew from the beginning, yeah. hey, I'm going to be good at this. But for, for everybody else, not in the cards. <laughs> yeah, for, for everybody else, it's more likely than not you're going to have to try a few things before you strike gold. Yeah. So that's, and that's, that's a skill. It's a skill that a lot of people have to develop to... To, to get good at being bad at things and take the humility involved in that. And I think, I mean, I, I think a big part of it is taking the idea of studying as a skill and learning as a skill, which I, I, I don't think we actually teach in school very well, which is funny because all we hear in school is develop the study habits. When, <laughs> what are they? I mean, we, and in some sense, the most important thing that school should tell you is how to learn and how to form abstract ideas and then tie them back down to reality. I would say that we basically spend zero time in school doing either one of those things mm -hmm. and then wonder why kids are bored in school all the time. It's like, well, why the hell wouldn't they be? Um, I, I, I believe, generally speaking, that most things in life can be learned, including how to learn, and that it's a worthwhile undertaking to figure out how to teach yourself something, you know, what they would call being an, an, an autodidact, rather than assuming that that's a thing someone's born with, assume it's a school that you can learn and then focus, pick a subject, pick a thing you want to learn about and use that as an excuse to teach yourself how to learn something new. I mean, that is a, as someone who's in, you know, almost in their thirties, not, not quite, thank God, but almost, I mean, that's something that I'm just now beginning to really appreciate is how do I actually teach myself something? I mean, I have access to the internet. I have access to all the information that I could ever want. How do I actually learn? And I'm finding that it's actually extremely hard to teach yourself something that it's extremely difficult. 
but I think it's a skill that will pay dividends. And so I'm trying to put the time in now to develop that skill for when, for now, and then also for later. Yeah. So Tim Ferriss has a, a very good quote about this, where he says that outside of the laws of physics, like the hard laws of physics, everything else is negotiable. And he uses this as a mindset just for everything. And he's famous for like learning things super fast and meta learning is what he calls it. Like learning how to learn, be better at learning. Yeah. And that's the huge skill. None of that's taught in schools. Like I was reading this book, it's called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. And it just documents this dude, this guy that just finds some mentors and uh, over the course of a year trains himself to be a, a world memory champion, like world-class top of the line, like just to prove that it's a, it's, it's a learned skill. It's something that you have to learn and develop. It's not just something that some people have, some people don't. So using that mindset, just, okay, if it's not a hard rule of physics, it's everything else is negotiable. Uh, you can, you can learn things super fast, memorize decks of cards in like seconds. And like, that's all doable. It's just like a, a, a trained skill, like you said. Um, but the, the real travesty is that you're right. None of this is taught in school. Like I, I wasn't taught how to learn. I wasn't taught how to think, which is, is something very important too. Cause once you can think well, everything else just gets easier. It's like, the t it's like the foundation of a talent stack, you know, like once you, once you learn how to think, every other problem becomes more manageable and it, it just helps you across the board. But again, the school never taught me that. It just taught me how to write a paper and then take subjective criticism and let that shape my uh, future creativity. Yeah. And I, I was going to say on the subject of a meta learning, I so <laughs> we were talking about ASMR last week. We're not going to talk about it today, but uh, <laughs> oh, some of our view or listeners and viewers were eager to hear more about that. Oh, I, I, ASMR is a YouTube hole best discovered at 3 a.m. in the comfort of a dark, secluded bedroom. Mm. But I, I do so if anybody who goes down the ASMR hole will be familiar with the Alexander technique, and as I know you and I have talked about that before. Um, I don't have any opinion on the Alexander technique. I don't really know anything about that technique, but I will say, in a, while I was in an ASMR hole this week, I came across a quote in it that I thought was actually brilliant and ties in with what we're talking about here. And it was the idea, and this is the quote, I think it's one of their sayings, but make the wrong conscience, make the wrong conscience. And the idea is that you focus on, if you want to stop doing something wrong, first start by doing it wrong and observing that as being the wrong thing to do. And so in the context of the Alexander technique, when they have people, they want them to keep their head a certain way. And essentially what they don't want them to do is they don't want them to, to pull their head back. And so what they would do is they would tell the people, pull your head back and they would put their hand or their, a book behind it and they would press their head into the book. And they would say, feel that? Don't do that. That's making the wrong conscience. Like experience the wrong way to do something. It's like, you know, not to do it. And I think that th this ties in really well with the idea of not being afraid to be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, is this idea of taking chances when you're learning? Don't be afraid to ask a dumb question. I mean, all these things are cliche. And yet I know that I have, and I'm sure that you have as well. We have literally sat in rooms in college of hundreds of kids and nobody asked a question. Well, there's no yeah, way in you? hell. Yeah, exactly. There's there's no way in hell that a hundred people in a room are understanding what a professor is telling the classroom. There's as zero percent chance. 
And yet people don't ask questions. Like they're afraid to be wrong. They're afraid of being embarrassed. Like we are teaching and, and notice how this ties into with the idea of social proof. If you're in a room full of people and no one asks a question, you're sure that's not going to ask a question because no one else is asking a question. Mm-hmm. And so this, this process, this social proof process feeds on people and in a classroom environment, I think actually holds us back because nobody wants to be the idiot. Well, I got news for everybody. We're all idiots. A smart person is a dumb person in disguise, period. No exception. There are no smart people in this world. We're all basically stupid. So stop being afraid of being embarrassed. Stop being afraid of being wrong. You, you, let me, here, here's the newsflash. You are wrong. <laughs> so no, no ambiguity there. You are incorrect. Learn why and then improve to move forward. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent true. And that's I, a common fear amongst all students. I would argue like I, I never asked, I try to keep a low profile in school. So that's part of why I never asked any questions, but overall, like, yeah, I've seen, I've seen certain students just get berated for asking stupid questions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I do know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you think teachers would understand to like have some patience and like compassion with these right. kids, but yeah. they're just like light them up. I've had one teacher that told me he was like he came into class one day. He was like, "Yeah, this is like during syllabus week," and he was like, "Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of people say there's no dumb questions." He's like, "Well, let me tell you right now, there are dumb questions out there, <laughs> and, and don't ask them or something like that." <laughs> Perfect, thank you. It's like okay, this is gonna be a great semester. Yeah, that uh, I, 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 my, my hope is that two things with, with lockdowns and the real struggle of learning online that all of us appreciate the job and the presence of having a teacher in a classroom actually bring something very valuable to students. I hope that COVID has taught us that lesson for anybody who didn't know it before. Now it's, I think, indisputable. And uh, the second part of that conversation is the counterpoint, which is how damaging a bad teacher can be. <laughs> like the good teachers make a big difference and the bad teachers also make a big difference. So uh, hopefully we can focus a conversation around that and ask you know, questions like, what makes a good teacher? What makes a bad teacher? I have no idea. I, uh, I do a podcast with my friend online. I don't know anything about teaching. But both of us know that teaching is important and hopefully COVID has given us data or something with which to evaluate those questions about education. Um, Because I actually think that education, I I should say this, I'm in the school of people who think that uh, the internet and computers really is poised to make radical changes in how we approach education that we just, we haven't done that yet, but that that change to me seems almost inevitable. And um, I want to be on the, I want to be ahead of that curve and not behind it. That's my, yeah. that's my, my wish. Yeah. Uh, I see the most promising, I think th- uh, change that I see moving forward with that is the fact that you no longer are held captive by your jurisdiction. You no longer have to go to the one street up your, up your road. Like, I think people are going to start to realize that it's all online. So it's no different whether the instructors are 3000 miles away or three miles away. And I think that's going to bring in a lot of competition and uh, if, if, essentially help out the education system long-term. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I mean, I'm, I, definitely, I definitely like the idea of um, really asking how, how do you make online education good 
And I think the first part of that question is to understand kind of as, as, as humans, what are the things that we really need to be in person for? Let's get really good at those things in person. And then the second one is, what are the things that we can do online really well? And let's do that. And I, I think the model that I kind of have in my head is that I think people can be exposed to new ideas on the internet. I think of like these like really high quality like Khan Academy, which is a godsend. I mean, that guy's brilliant. I don't know how he does all of it. He gets some big money from Elon Musk. I'm happy to hear that. But it seems to me that you can expose people to ideas on the internet pretty well in that what's best done in person is the kind of one-on-one understanding of your personal sticking points. I think everybody's going to understand things just a little bit differently and having somebody in a, in a classroom that can actually work with you through some specific problem seems to me that that would be challenging to do online, not impossible, but challenging, but that if you could separate that part, kind of that one-on-one tutoring versus the initial exposure of information um, and get really, really hyper good at both of those separate camps. Um, mm-hmm. That's, I guess, one model I have in my head for how this might play out in the end, but I'm, I will tell. Yeah, no, I, I'd like to see us develop and foster more of a society of the autodidacts, like what yeah. we were talking about, the self-learners. Like we, I don't necessarily think it makes that much sense to force students to learn all these different subjects. Like how many people out there are never going to use the calculus they learned? Like, I mean, besides us and we're engineers, like how many people out there are going <laughs> to use some of this curriculum that's just shoved down their throats? Like, Right. I, I think we need to, in the future, be able to train people how to learn, make them good at learning, and then allow them to, to, to find their own trade, find their own path, and effectively develop new industries and decentralize this this uh, employment strategy that we use today. Like, just there's just company. You know, the, it's the status quo that you have to go to a company, you have to find a company, you have to work there with one of these five degrees. Yeah, I think that that whole system has a lot of opportunity to be overhauled and decentralized. Yeah. Well, you know, we have, we have laws in place today that prohibit certain kinds of discrimination. Good. I would like to see one more law added to that, which would, and I hypothetically, I haven't thought this all the way through, but hypothetically, what if it were illegal to ask somebody if they had a college degree? Just imagine for a second, like that's the rule. You, you cannot ask if anybody has a college degree. And at least maybe that fights the stigma of not having to have a degree to apply for certain jobs. Because I can tell you so many jobs have that as a, as a requisite. And you're, for what purpose? Why? It, it makes no sense at all. So I would like, and to, to that extent, I, I applaud the people that are working towards that effort of trying to uh, fight against that tide of you know, college becoming a requirement for people. I like the people that are pushing against that because I don't see why that has to be the case. And I would hope that really, if anything, in the age of the internet where that information is available, that I would, I would hope in some sense, this actually would, would be against my own economic interest, but I would hope that as time goes on, college degrees are actually less valuable because it would show that we are seeing past a piece of paper, which may or may not uh, demonstrate a certain skill set mm-hmm. versus actually having that skill set. Um, so I would like to see companies move away from that. So hypothetically, I think, like, what if you couldn't even inquire about a college degree? If you just couldn't even ask about it? 
um, that maybe that would force an employer to look at each each personal or each potential hire um, through a different lens, through some kind of other skill assessment given on the spot, through some kind of uh, um, probationary period where they work for a certain amount of time before being hired. I don't know, you know, however it would play out, but if you just got rid of the stigma of not having a college degree, then I, at least in my mind, I think that would help quite a bit and uh, at least push towards more of the autodidactic, always learning, continuously learning, which is what I want to have anyways. But maybe force that along a little bit by just trying to fight some of the pressures for having a degree to begin with. Yeah. It's like, it's like we as a society have developed this artificial barrier to entry into the corporate world called college. And it's, yeah. we've it's made extremely it expensive. <laughs> it's and now we're, yeah. And that's the problem we're in. We're seeing this and we're like, okay, we created this, this garbage and now it, it it's not that good. So let's just keep pumping more money into it and making more student loans and really emphasizing that people should do this and uh, comply with the system um, when it's just hurting everyone. Like no one's yeah. coming out on top. And it's just our degrees every year get more and more devalued just based on the sheer number of people that are getting ushered into the, that path. Yeah, I, I think if you're a company, I think if a company really wants to hire people with a degree, then the question should be, well, then they should be paying for it. If that degree actually matters to that company's bottom line. Yeah. If it's relevant then, to your job there, to your occupation. Yeah, then they should pay for it. Um, so that's kind of how it used to be, right? Like uh, before all this. I, don't know. I mean, certainly some companies do give tuition reimbursement and some companies to this day still, still do that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was thinking more along the lines of like trades, like the journeyman path where you, you you're sure. learning on the job how to do it yeah 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 i mean i i i would i i think that would have been a far better way for me to learn engineering actually would it be some kind, of, some kind of a apprenticeship type yeah training or something where you're actually learning you know how to think again how to think like a inter, you know doctor engineer lawyer whatever it is um that uh, I think those apprenticeship type models would actually be quite quite good. And in fact, actually in Anti-Fragile, I believe, Nassim talks about in, in some countries, that's how they do banking. That banking is like this apprenticeship-based model. And uh, you know, you want to think of that in the United States as banking being apprenticeship-based, but in some countries, that, that, that's how they do it. And uh, it's just interesting. I mean, it's just this idea that uh, you know, if what you're learning is valuable, then someone should be paying you to learn it. That makes sense to me. So, you know, I, I, college is obviously hard. I don't have the, the magic bullet on how to solve uh, college financial problems, but it, it does seem upsetting to me that, you know, there are jobs that, re, that will require a college degree that the people in those jobs are not using their degree or anything special about their degree to really bring to the table. And so you're wondering, well, why the hell is it a requirement? I don't, to me, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know. It's, it's a broken system. We're just all pretending it's not. That, that's what I see is happening. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I agree with you there. Um, let me kind of on the, on the same topic, we're talking about education. Of course, education is a form of authority. Let's talk about influence. I finished Influence this week, uh, which is a great book. I'm going to want to say it again. Go buy Influence, Robert Cialdini. Go buy Influence. Also buy his other book, Persuasion. Again, Robert Cialdini, go buy both of those books, read both of those books, memorize both of those books. 
I want to talk about authority today. And I want to talk about it in the following context of how people blindly follow authority. And I want to give it in the context of a, an, an anecdote given an influence that I thought was hilarious. And it was essentially, and I'm, I'm going to give the, uh, give the uh, story of what happened. A doctor wrote a prescription for a patient in a, in a hospital. He had an ear infection. And the prescription was to get three drops in his right ear using an eardropper. Okay. So he writes on a piece of paper, three drops, R, E, A, R. Okay. Nurse comes in the room, takes out the eardropper, puts it in the guy's ass, and gives him rectally three eardrops. That is the worst day anybody has ever had in a hospital in a very long time. I'll tell you that right now. That is horrible that that happened. But it did happen. And why did it happen? Because the nurse, who is intelligent, trained, college degree, knows what they're doing. You know, nurses are smart people. How could a smart person do something so incredibly silly? Mm-hmm. Blindly following authority. Well, what is, in, what, is, what is authority? Authority is one of the ways in which our brains, in order to conserve energy, in order to make decisions quicker, we use shortcuts in thinking. All of these influential parameters are ways that our brain uses shortcuts for thinking. And one of the shortcuts that our brains use is identifying an authority figure and then mirroring or blindly following their example, because usually the authority figures are going to be right. I mean, doctors are also smart people. Doctors are not just only always making mistakes. They're usually not making mistakes. The problem is that sometimes they do make mistakes. And when you follow authority, as in the case of the nurse who rectally gave somebody eardrops, then you are, you are allowing those influential parameters to govern you at a higher level than they should. I said this last week when we're talking about influence. I think the byline for this book, and I, I may have heard this from somewhere else. I don't know if I'm the first person to, to think of this. I'm probably not. If I could give a new byline for this book, it would be how to say no. Because what this book tells you is for each one of these influential parameters, you know, social proof, authority, et cetera, how to catch yourself from being overly reliant on these mental shortcuts, not to get rid of the shortcuts, because and as, I, as I've said, and as the, the author advocates for in the book, these shortcuts are extremely useful, especially now in our information age that we have too much to deal with to actually think through everything all the time, that would be ridiculous. We need these shortcuts. At the same time, if we're going to use them, we need to make sure that we're using them effectively. And so in this case, with, with authority, it means taking a, taking a beat and thinking, does this medication that normally goes in your ear go in the guy's butt? No. Well, no, it does not. Well, th- yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good point you made about, about how these things are always going to be there, right? Like there's, you're always going to have this reflex to follow authority. You're always going to have this reflex to assume someone with social proof is more important than someone without it. And in the example you gave with the nurse, yeah, the nurse was blindly following authority, but even worse, what what, what about the patient? Like poor guy, poor guys in there. His ear hurts, and he's like afraid to ask why they're putting something up his ass when he. Uh, yeah. exactly right. But uh, you, you yeah. realize that though. I, I was at an event not too long ago, and like I think there was like a line or something, and just right someone like came up that like had like a vest on or something, yeah. and said like maybe this is at work, and they said, "Oh, you you got to go over here, sir. You have to move over to this line." 
it's like, how easy would it be? And then and I just like immediately complied. You know, I didn't even think about it until afterwards. I was like, that was kind of weird. Like I just blindly did what this dude told me because he had a vest on. Yeah. Uniforms, and, uniforms are that way. Even business suits. I, I have, uh, I have friends and uh, people who I know that do development work in other countries. Yeah. I see a marked difference in how people respond to them when they wear a business suit. Or I think it was actually a, a, a collar. That in, in, in some countries, if you're wearing a collar, it's like a big deal. And if you're not wearing a collar, it, you, you are not a big deal. And so you have to dress a certain way in order to give across that authority perspective. But again, you know, that's just our brains seeing a collar that we have come to associate with authority. And this has, you know, real impact in people's behavior so that people who do that kind of work know, hey, if I want these people to help me build a bridge, I got to wear a collar. That's just how and they, they just learned that from doing it. But it's all around us. I mean, it's all around us. Um, I have a scary story. I won't say who it involves, but I, I have a, a, a person very close to me who was uh, essentially kidnapped for a little bit by a person pretending to be a police officer. Oh. I mean, that could have ended. Luckily, it ended up kind of having this weird, like non-climatic ending. But I mean, that could have been bad news bears and uh real quick <laughs> but i mean if somebody has a badge and a vest or a uniform or whatever right you just the brain click all authority on on with whatever else you're doing i i have a new strategy with police that i think i'm gonna start implying or applying to my life it's a uh, wait, wait wait now is this part of your resolutions from <laughs> it, it's a contender it, you might need to add it to the list but i think if i'm ever in a police situation where i'm getting a question by the police or something i don't think i'm ever going to answer anything like i'm just going to say i'm just going to plead the fifth like from the beginning say like i'm i, I prefer not to talk unless you know with all due respect i'm not going to speak unless my lawyer's present because i've been watching a lot of cops and a lot of uh, i follow a lot of like lawyers and on on twitter and stuff and that's the thing they say is like yeah you're the, when you talk to a cop it's only gonna it can only hurt you it's never gonna help you so I, I think that's going to be my new strategy. Like if, if I ever find myself in a situation, innocent or guilty, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. And then you run the risk. It could not even be a cop too. Who knows? Yeah. I, to me, what I would like to have happen, I was actually talking about this with my wife earlier in the week. I would like it to be, not only do they have to read you your Miranda rights when they arrest you, but they shouldn't even give you the option of saying no to like a lawyer or anything until a lawyer is literally already in the room. Like the lawyer should have to like literally be next to you before the cops can even ask you if you want to say anything. Like they, in other words, it should be assume that I say yes and like bring me the counsel and then have me tell the counsel to leave. Like I want there to be that extra that extra layer of preventing any pre-counsel conversation, et cetera, with an officer when someone is arrested. That the lawyer should have to be in the room next to the person before anything even starts. And then you can say, do you want a lawyer? And they can say no, and the person can leave. Or hopefully they say yes, and the person stays. Like to me, that's what I, that's the level that I wanna see happen for um, these kind of encounters with, uh, with, with uh, law enforcement. Yeah, well, you're gonna need a lot of lawyers for that, just based on how many traffic stops there are, right? That's, well, maybe not for traffic stops, but at least for a situation where you're being like actually detained or something. Um, I just want to, I, I, I want the, uh, the default to be even more imposed on people that you have a lawyer present just to make sure 
that no funny business is going on uh, with with these uh, interactions, as it were. Mm-hmm. No, it's funny just watching cops in these shows, how many people just incriminate themselves right just, away, <laughs> just off the whim. Don't even think about it. They just they're like, sir, have you been drinking tonight? And he's like, well, yeah, no, it's just medication. Like, I haven't been drinking. And yeah. it's like, oh, well, you just sold yourself out. Like, there you go. If you had said no, then they would have just breathalyzed you and you might have been on your way. But yeah. now they're taking you in for blood work. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, uh, I I've have spent many a night watching failed videos of people handing tactic stops in entirely the wrong fashion of how you would want to handle Very good. I want to, uh, two more things I want to talk about. I want to get your take on something I thought that I had this week, but actually I thought tied in really nicely with. I know one of your one of maybe the, the first things that you said on this podcast was the idea that people that maybe part of their, our downfall is that we're, we think and use words, that there's just this inherent limitation in using words to express ideas. Mm-hmm. So I really thought about that this week. I thought this is uh, my not a response, but maybe a, a corollary to that point that you made. It's, it's just an idea. But basically, what if what if? most conversation is not about exchanging information because most conversations don't really even exchange information. <laughs> most of what we say is wrong, misremembered, poorly stated, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's much more about building social cohesion with people that we talk as an excuse to spend time next to somebody that I, as a human being, am getting a benefit from just being close to you. Yeah, and the language of the world. The language of the world and that I'm talking to you as just kind of like an excuse because it's kind of awkward to just stand there and look at somebody for a long period of time but that's kind of uncomfortable but if I talk about the weather or about politics or about any other number of useless things that I'm probably getting all the details wrong on I'm just kind of making it less awkward to build that social cohesion and I was thinking the really the main reason I'm, I'm thinking this is that we should when we're remembering conversations and when we find ourselves in conversations there is a there is a pressure to be right, especially when it comes to politics. There, there's a there's a pressure to debate and to argue. And my response to that would be, given that probably whatever you're saying is wrong, is it really worth saying? Is it really worth debating or arguing? Given that you probably and I am absolutely in the case probably have no idea what we're talking about, especially with like complicated political things. I remember back in 2016 with like trade deals. I was like talking about trade. I'm like. Who knows one goddamn thing about a trade deal? I mean, give me a break. Everybody has all these opinions about TPP and all this other bullshit. I'm like, what are we talking about? This is ridiculous. But I think it's, we're just, it's just, it's, it's an excuse to be by other people. And if we remember that, then we can have a conversation, we can have a disagreement, we can have a debate, realizing that probably the bigger part of that outcome is just this social thing that's happening behind the scenes, the, uh, you know, dopamine or, you know, the, whatever the other chemical, the serotonin, whatever it is, it's just triggering those hormones, those chemicals. And the talking is just a kind of a way to, it's like the loading bar on a computer that for human beings, that loading bar is just, you know, incoherent babble about nothing, but yet it gets us through the day. And then, you know, we end up being friends uh, later on or something. Yeah. I see it. I see it more as like a, just an inherent expression of like the script of life. You know, if you're assuming that we're, coming from a, a nonstop series of particle collisions. And that's where we are now. Um, it's just like, and it's just an expression of that, a physical expression of that. 
And uh, I think that um, with respect to to talking, well, I don't know. What, what else were you thinking about that? What other thoughts did you have? Well, I was thinking really this week about uh, fuck, let's <laughs> drop my glasses off about uh, <laughs> persuasion. And I was thinking like, what is, what is the real benefit of persuasion is not just that it's communicating effectively. That's a big part of it. But another big part of it is that to, to, and this is a part a point that's made by um, uh, Dale Carnegie as well, I think, but to actually be persuasive, you have to be able to empathize with the other person yeah. and you have to put yourself in their perspective. And I think it's impossible for someone to really do that without themselves becoming a little bit persuaded by that other person's point of view. So that when you're having a conversation with somebody, when you're being persuasive, you have two forces pushing the argument together. You have the speaker using persuasion on you to draw them closer to your side. But then in, the, in that person's head, the person doing the talking, you have the force of them putting their, or putting themselves from your point of view, which will push them closer to you. So you, you have these two forces working at the exact same time, pushing people together if they're doing it properly. If they're not trying to be con man uh, and use, you know, tactics, but if they're actually trying to be persuasive and to be and to empathize with the person, you'll have these two forces working together to bring people on an issue closer to some middle point or whatever it happens to be during the conversation. I, I think a big part of why a lot of these political debates are go nowhere is because for many conversations in general, people, they're, they're not listening. They're they're when they're not listening, when the other person's talking, they're just trying to think of what, what to say next, or they're, they're putting some filter on whatever they're saying. So like, if you're listening to someone from the opposite party, political party speaking to you, you're right away, just, you're not like listening to what they're saying. You're just no. processing. Okay. Counterpoint, 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 counterpoint. Like, let no. me load up. And then whenever they stop talking, you just go on transmit and then they're doing the same exact thing back. So there's no inherently going to be no resolution just because of that. Yeah. You know, like there, there's a phrase being active listener, right? I think what you have is like people are, are, are actively not listening. Like they're actively making sure that they don't listen. It's like, I want to try really hard to not hear what you have to say right now. Like, I'm going to really focus on, not understanding your point right now. Exactly. It, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I actually really agree with that. I mean, I, for, for reasons that will become apparent more in my, in my short story, I, um, I, I don't want to be over, over the top, but I really think that persuasion is one of these skills that a long-term human project really, really requires. But there are some problems where violence are just, it's just not going to be able to solve the problem. And if you have two sides of a debate who disagree and you really, really, really can't use violence, you only have one other choice and that's persuasion. That's communication or diplomacy. I mean, it's all the same thing. It's actively communicating effectively. And there are some problems that we have where that's all that we have going for us. We don't have any other choice. And so I, I would hope that people would take that as a challenge to think, okay, well, I'm going to learn these skills. I'm going to learn how to communicate effectively, part of which would mean how to be an effective listener, how to change my mind, That is, which, by the way, is another important skill, how to change your mind. Well, it's actually really easy. Think back when you were younger of all the dumb things you believed in and realize they were all wrong 
And now you realize you've changed your mind. Congratulations. You'll be, you'll be doing that uh, four times a day for the rest of your life. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Because like I said from the beginning, we're all basically idiots. That's really, that's kind of it. And if we're comfortable with that idea, then we're going to be okay. But if we're not, bad news bears. Bad yeah. news bears. Yeah, well, before you go to your, your story or your piece, I, I do want to plug this uh, this book I've been reading. Mm. Uh, Jay Krishnamurti. It's uh, this, this, this Indian dude that's very... Uh, people have described him as like reaching enlightenment by just being so, so super rational and super logical about like every thought that he has. And he talks a lot about uh, having these illusions of authority in your mind or like labels, like, and just how terrible they are for trying to learn or trying to even communicate with the people at any meaningful level. Like if you associate yourself as being a Hindu, that that's a big filter that obscures, you know, different aspects of what you're looking at in life and that extends to everything like i'm a i'm a american i'm a this religion i'm that religion i follow this sports team i do this i'm this type of person and just having those authorities of the mind and the labeling is what just like screws us all up it creates like a, a ton of just conflict w within us and it makes us blind to seeing that conflict because we once you make the assumption of following some authority or following some label it's easy to fall under the illusion of anything else. So that's his whole thing. Like, like you were talking about is learning to reject that, identify the authorities and questioning, like, why is that there? Does that need to be there? And that's, that's a big step towards, towards freedom in his opinion. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it is going to only become easier to fake expertise and to fake authority moving forward. And as a result, we need to be really careful about who we identify as authority figures. First of all, we need more robust processes for actually identifying experts and authority figures because we, we, do, we do need them. But it's very easy to fake being one. And it's very easy for someone who is an expert in one subject to pretend to be an expert in another subject. And that's also scary to me. Um, and so... These are, again, I mean, the layering of all these problems. And I think uh, understanding how our brain thinks is such an important uh, skill set to have. I mean, understanding how you perceive the world is a very important thing to spend a good amount of time thinking about. I would say for myself personally, I spent zero time thinking about that until probably you introduced me to persuasion. And I mean, that, that is a life-changing uh, discovery, basically, because before that framework, you are missing so many things about how we think that, you, that we cannot really afford to be ignorant of. Because if we're ignorant of them, they will be used to control us. They will be used, even if they don't want to be. We, you are subjected to influential pressures, whether you or the parties using them mean to be using them. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. They're being used anyway. They had the same. They had the same effect on us, whether it is intentional or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that this book is kind of now that you described it that way. It's talking about persuasion, but just in a different in a different light. Yeah, and that makes sense why someone like 
like Scott Adams, for example, is very, very educated in persuasion and hypnosis. And he, 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 he's an expert in those fields. And a lot of that I think is his own exploration of avoiding these biases. And then you look at someone like Naval Ravikant, who's also equally as smart as Scott Adams and influential. Like this is the dude that he, he, if he ever wrote a book, it would be the number one New York times bestseller hands down. In fact, someone just copied down a bunch of his tweets and got yeah, it to be one book. So he, he, but he refuses the right one because uh, I don't know who knows why. But he looks to Eastern philosophy for a lot of the things that I think Scott Adams looks to persuasion for. And yeah, there's a, there's an interesting crossover there that's uh, more nuanced than people give credit to it. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of it comes down to this idea of if you can convince yourself of thinking of something beyond yourself. If you can, if you can, if, if that idea enters your mind, then you are much more likely to, to challenge the, what in my view, as kind of a materialist would be literally the physical limitations of a brain, which would be what? Well, it's an energy using machine. So it has to save energy. It has to be, you know, robust to uh, possibly dangerous information. It can't just relearn something every single day. So it has to have some kind of memory involved with it. And it has to be some kind of shortcut procedure in place. And you have to default to staying alive rather than some other function. So when you realize that those processes are were involved in the brain being created, then you would never assume it to be this perfectly rational computer. Why would that ever even be the case? But that was kind of the assumption of a lot of previous philosophers, this idea of this, the mind being this very esoteric thing. And I yeah. think it definitely is, but it isn't perfect. And if we're open to the limitations of, a, of having a material body, and I think at some level a material mind, then we allow ourselves to be more critical of that filter that we are experiencing the world through. And then through that challenge, come out of it actually being much more rational and much more effective at the project of humanity. Yeah, well, our minds, a lot of people believe that our minds weren't evolved to understand the, the objective reality of the world. They were just uh, evolved to make us stay alive. Like you said, like take there's shortcuts that the brain has to take for efficiency purposes, for power consumption, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's really no evidence that that our brains are intended to even understand the objective world. Right, right. And that, that puts us at risk. Oh. Risk of manipulation, risk of anxiety, stress, all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with all of that. Absolutely. So you want to go over to your, your piece now? I do. I want to get to it now, and then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time for uh, discussion afterwards. But now is a good time to switch over to my piece for this evening, which is called <clears throat> The Unrelenting Birthright of Human Comprehension in the Nuclear Era. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. This is going to be a good one. Well, fingers crossed. <clears throat> Choice connects the present to the future. Tragedy is living life as if it were an accident. Survival, our first step towards a permanent human empire. Proposal, stop suffocating the imagination of the youth in a charade optimism of a lousy future. We are drowning in a sea of spiritual empty calories. We created the pornographic universe where everything is exaggerated beyond recognition. 
be talking tongues, not along, satisfied that gibberish necessarily translates with perfect accuracy. We find ourselves dancing for daylight in a black and white photograph. Every human has a birthright to comprehend this universe. If ethics is a part of the universe, comprehending the universe will lead to comprehending this ethic. Knowledge truly is power. The most challenging enemies are scarcity and ignorance. Our challenge is to dominate the universe and to comprehend it. We have not comprehended the impact of distributed information of the internet. We are stuck in a world of learning in previously established orders. I suspect this will change. Computers and classrooms are only a distraction because kids have more fun on the internet than listening to a boring lesson. Why are we resisting this? Shouldn't the lesson be that school is too boring? The modern cruelty of education is that we force children to learn from standardized curriculums. This is an anachronism in the, in the presence of the internet. We must move the instruction of children into the education of universals that children can then use to learn on their own. There must have been a terrifying feeling for the first person to comprehend the mind of God, to comprehend an ever-watching eye who never forgets the past. They must have tried so hard to convince themselves that this wasn't possible. No such thing could exist. The optimists assured themselves that no just universe could allow such an evil as a permanent record of human history, of that mighty and pornographic struggle from the muddy swampland, that awful thrifty creature who huddled in darkness, fearful of the dark and the light, fearful of the noises and the silence of that outside world beyond the cave that seems so large in comparison to the safety of the inner mind of the first humans. No such record should exist. No God would allow it. No God would allow themselves to exist. Justice cries for mercy. Justice cries for moving on. Justice cries for forgetting. Justice cries and falls on deafened ears, still ringing from the violence of the past from which they came, resting on the shoulder of Monday, waiting for the world to end. There is no information age or digital age or any other such age as supposedly came after the nuclear age. There is only the nuclear age and the hope that we someday will escape it. We are living on borrowed time. What makes the nuclear age so troubling is that humans are literally wired to be experiment machines. But here we have no option to experiment. To borrow a phrase from Nassim Taleb, one data point is too many. A troubling thought is a realization that the human species may, at some fundamental level, be incompatible with the strong nuclear force responsible for atomic weapons. We must learn the lessons of nuclear war from a perspective totally different from the way we have learned every other lesson. Alas, I have faith. Consider the following. Either we are living in the past of an immortal super race of human beings, or we are living before some event in the future where we are extinct. There is nothing in between. Our first step is a choice of a culture that affirms that life is worth living. The second step is a process of examining the world that we create to be compatible with that vision. Most people in, in life agree that life is worth living. We can consider ourselves somewhere in the process of making that second step. And here there is one key tool, persuasion. 
Persuasion is the only weapon at our disposal that can prevent nuclear war from annihilating the entirety of the human race. The thought process is simple. How do we resolve differences when the danger of violence is unacceptable? The only answer is diplomacy, which is a pretentious way of saying persuasion. In fact, a lack of persuasion skills is currently a very serious detriment to the current project of human flourishing. Luckily, we have plenty of tools for developing persuasion, and listeners to this podcast are familiar with many of them. One important side effect of effective persuasion, as has been pointed out by some of its key practitioners, is that it forces the speaker to empathize with the audience. This is key, because actually putting yourself in someone else's perspective will undoubtedly affect the way you end up viewing the topic you are discussing. When both parties are engaging in persuasive speech, two forces are, are at work bringing the parties together, the recipient under the influence of the persuasive techniques and the speaker from experiencing the world through the eyes of the other party. Between us and a limitless future is a set of skills needed for effective communication. Effective communication that leads to the eradication of evil not through violence, but by humans simply being persuaded to create a world that ensures the agreed upon superiority of life to death. In the end, luck will not save us because in the end, we will not need it to. Wow. So would you consider this to be uh... a rose or a rhetoric? Yeah, would this fall into the roses or the rhetoric part? No, is it more fact or more fiction? What would you consider the genre? Fact. Okay. And can you talk a little bit more about the the uh, the, the scenarios that you outlined that we're either the the past of immortal beings or or some something else? Can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I think either we live forever or humans go extinct. I think at some level, you if the timeline... Humanity as a whole, not the individual. But the, no, okay. yes. Yeah. I don't have any desire or I shouldn't say any desire. I don't have any uh, belief that I'm going to live forever. But the, the project of humanity, the, the project of a, a moral consciousness, as it were, either will exist forever or will cease to exist. And mm-hmm. I don't really see any between there. I think at, when the timeline goes to infinity, either we make it or we don't. Mm-hmm. To, borrow, to borrow a quote from uh, Tyler Durden from Fight Club, you know, on a long enough timeline, the life, um, everybody's life tends to zero. I, I hope that he's wrong. I really do. <laughs> okay, very good. So, and then you tied it into, I liked how you tied in persuasion to the nuclear war and the concept of nuclear war happening and how that the only tool we effectively have is the ability to persuade, which as you made a point earlier, the empathy is a big part of that. So effectively, like a big part of avoiding nuclear war is just listening to each other at that point and understanding each other. Yes. Um, Do you think there's any other safeguards against nuclear war that stand out to you? Well, we certainly had many in place right now. Luckily so. I mean, we, we have people whose job is to monitor nuclear activity, et cetera, et cetera. People in the FBI and the CIA who are at work every single day trying to prevent these doomsday scenarios. I 
am grateful, eternally grateful that people do that job and do it well. And I thank you for, for that. Nothing is a hundred percent effective when it involves people. And the problem is that despite our best efforts, we have had some really, really close calls with nuclear war almost beginning. As early as 1995, America and Russia almost got in a nuclear exchange over a misinterpreted radar signal. Now, that's not that long ago. <laughs> and we came within literally the push of a button of the world going away. Now, that has me terrified. I hope that it has other people terrified as well. But again, I'm hopeful because why? We actually have methods at our disposal for solving problems without violence. I mean, nuclear war is something that cannot be solved permanently with violence because eventually the violence will escalate to the thing you're trying to avoid. So we have to have other tools at our disposal. Again, we sometimes call it diplomacy, but all, I mean, what is diplomacy? It, what, it's, it's just trying to be persuasive. So that is our only tool long-term. And from that reason, I, I am hopeful because we actually have authors and speakers, et cetera, who recognize the impact of persuasion and are giving it to, in a, in a sense, giving it to all of us to put in our, in our toolkit, hopefully elevate that conversation in the public setting of how important it is that we understand as humans, not only how to be diplomatic, but how to understand our own limitations as far as thinking human beings is concerned, to understand where we're not being rational, where, where we're being stupid, to overcome that and to, again, continue the project of human flourishing. Yeah, you, hopefully we get to see a lot more of that happening. Um, how do you how do you distinguish between the right balance of powers between persuasion versus something like strategy, right? Because when yeah. you're negotiating with another country, there's definitely a strategy uh, part that's involved as well. Do you think that yeah. the strategy is is overshadowed by the persuasion in most cases, or where do you see the the weight balance there? Well, I would say I would see it more as an intersection because with strategy, you have to actually convince the other side of how the table is actually set. And even if you have a really good strategy, if you cannot persuade the other team, in a sense, to accept your proposal, then it really won't matter how good the deal is. I mean, this is why deal making will always involve people. Why? Because it will always involve a person agreeing to it. So therefore, you will need somebody else, another person to understand that, to work with them, to get them to agree. I mean, ultimately what we have is a situation where people, when it comes to nuclear war, we have to be in total agreement that it can't happen. Because if one person says, ah, we'll be fine. And then the whole thing starts, it's like, like one is too many. Again, one data point is too many. We, we don't have room for error. I mean, and, and again, I'll go back. We have had so many, I mean, I shouldn't even say so many. We have had too many close calls that to me, the alarming issue is, is this is, this is, and in fact, I was reading an article about this. Somebody wrote in, uh, I think 1985, they kind of gave our, our current political positioning with nuclear war and with nuclear weapons as somebody pulling the trigger on Russian roulette saying, well, it hasn't gone off it. It hasn't gone off it. It hasn't gone off it. I mean, that that's a game that only dumb people would play because it doesn't matter if it hasn't gone off yet. The past doesn't help you make a good decision in this circumstance about the future goes in. We don't have room for experimenting. 
And so in a, in a sense, persuasion with, with strategy, it's so important because you have, the, the stakes are so high that we have to make sure that, other, that everybody is in agreement. And so certainly strategy, you know, whether it's development or whatever it is, that's going to be a part of it. But because we live in a world where there are people behind all of these trigger buttons, persuasion to me still is the key piece. Uh, it really, and, and really in, in, in some sense you want it to be because you wouldn't want a computer to control the nuclear weapons because there might be a case where the program thinks it's a good idea where a person doesn't think it's a good idea. And that goes back to the example in 1995. I'll talk about that on, another, on a later episode. But essentially if a person hadn't done what they weren't supposed to do in that situation, a war could have very easily broken out. It was a person deciding to not use information. Now, a computer wouldn't have done that. So in a way, you don't want to take people out of the program too much. You want people to always be able to say no. But for that to be the case, we also need to have persuasion in the mix because that persuasion is, 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 is a conversation that recognizes the psychological limitations of a human being. That's how I would describe what persuasion is. And so we always need that to be a part of the mix for these conversations. Mm-hmm. So with respect to nuclear weapons, uh, do, you, do they have a place in the world? Like I know that some people fall under the belief that we just shouldn't have any nuclear weapons anywhere. No country should. But even so, like even if that was like the UN policy or the, the world policy, so to no. speak, how, I mean, how can you trust that Russia is going to follow it? How can you trust that China is yeah. going to follow it? So, I mean, would you advocate at that point that you, that the U.S. or whatever country you're living in has a has a stockpile? Yeah, larger than your opponents, or <laughs> yeah, I mean, I my feeling right now as a non-expert, as somebody who is here, in, in in some sense, I think this is one of the few problems that humanity faces right now that could happen really quickly. I mean, we have a bunch of problems that we're trying to deal with right now. Mm. None of them really have the potential to eradicate all of humanity in like an hour. Like nothing really comes even close to that. So <clears throat> from, from that point of view, I mean, I, I will say that I am right now persuaded, if you will, to be in the camp of having zero nuclear weapons that we need to find a way, again, through negotiation, through persuasion of getting everybody to just agree that, that the stakes are too high. And I agree with you. I trust is a huge problem with this. And it goes back to the, to the issue of transparency. I mean, that, 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 this kind of goes back to some of the earlier nuclear negotiations of how, you know, trust but verify, that kind of thing. Um, all that's important. I would say that in the camp that I'm in right now, I don't want any nuclear weapons because when they exist, the risk of them being used is greater than zero. And the side effects of them being used seem mm-hmm. to really only be super, super bad for a lot of people, including people who have nothing at all to do with the conflict, with decision makings. You know, if, if a war were to break out between the United States and Russia and involve nuclear weapons, the entire world would be penalized for that, even though they would have nothing to do with either country going to war. I mean, we are imposing that fallout on so many people who want nothing to do with it. Yeah. So that's kind of this, this, this libertarian point of view of trying to minimize coercion it doesn't really make sense to have th- these weapons either. So that, that's the world that I want to move towards. How to do it, I am, I am positive it is not easy. I am positive that this is not some simple thing. But as a long-term goal, put me in the camp of people who want zero nuclear weapons uh, 
in our arsenal. Yeah, that sounds like a much safer place than being in the nuclear stalemate that we are in now. But to expand on that, what would you say to uh, just looking ahead at humanity's future? Because we were talking about humanity going to infinity. A big part of that is us needing to leave this planet and go to other planets. And, you know, there's no evidence of it today, but if there was, you know, does it make sense for humanity to continue to develop their nuclear weaponry and at least stay up to speed on the technology, which inevitably is going to involve building some prototypes, right? Like, does it make sense to continue our nuclear explorations scientifically on Earth with the anticipation of, uh, you know, extraterrestrial conflict or extraterrestrial threats? I would have to say yes. Now, that's kind of a contradiction. Let me save myself a little bit by saying that, and maybe to the detriment of people who are, would also call themselves libertarians. I think that at some point in the future, we will have something like a quote, one world government. And I think in that framework, we don't really have warring nations anymore. I think the conversation around nuclear weapons is a little bit different. You think we'll Uh, have a one world government? I think not anytime soon, not in my lifetime, not Uh, many, many, but I'm thinking like 10 million years in the future or something like some crazy number. I I would think at some point humanity comes together in, in some way more so than we are now. I think that framework changes having nuclear weapons, if you have the ability to store them on another planet where they can't affect Earth, like if they were all on the moon or something, that would change the conversation as well. Um, I think right now our limitation is that we have them on Earth. We have no escape plan. Like we only live on Earth. And for the foreseeable future, that will be the case, even if Elon's Mars mission works out. And I hope that it does. It's still many, many years away from actually having a separate Earth to live on. So because in that framework, I think the risk of nuclear war is, is too high a risk to have. But I think that changes if you could put them all on, say, you know, Titan or, you know, the moon and was that Jupiter or Saturn. If you put them all on, on another planet where they really can't hurt us, but they, they still give us a safeguard for, because I actually agree with you. I mean, I think, again, from this point of view of like way, way out in the future, we should have an idea for, hey, what would we do if we're really up against a tight spot with a more advanced alien race? I, I want to have the guns. <laughs> that, that's yeah, my you can't just be a sitting duck. Yeah. So I think when you get into the conversation about deep space exploration and the ability to really separate yourself from a a misfiring of a nuclear weapon and the potential fallout from that, then I think you're in safer territory. Until then, I think the target should be zero. And um, you reevaluate it when you get to a point where you are able to safely you know, and hopefully not even transport them to space. Hopefully you, you, you make them where they mm-hmm. end up. So like you make them on the moon or you make them on, you know, on Titan or something like that. So you avoid having to actually fly, you know, with these missiles uh, as part of your cargo going up into space. Yeah. Wouldn't that be bad? <laughs> if that, if that payload blows up on the way up, there was a, there was a project. I don't know. It's not around anymore. And I'm pretty sure I had the name right, but there's a, there's a, a prototype idea called uh, Project Orion, where the propulsion for the spaceship would be nuclear bombs going off behind it. So you, you would have a blast plate and you would send out a nuclear bomb and it would blow up and it would shoot the ship forward and then you would blow up another one and it would move it forward as well. Yeah. 
great idea. You're probably going to go pretty fast. I don't want us to be shipping up a bunch of nuclear weapons on that, you know, low Earth to Earth orbit. I don't want an arsenal of nuclear weapons to be a part of that, uh, to be a part of that mission. So if a Project Orion comes back, let's make those bombs somewhere else. And then, then maybe we can talk about that as a mechanism for, uh, for space travel. Yeah, or at least find some barge that they can launch off of somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the ocean, middle <laughs> yeah. of the Atlantic. Um, what, real quick, though, about the, the single, um, the one world government. Do you think we're heading that way? Because it, I mean, have you, have you looked at a map recently? Like of all the yeah. different countries? Yeah. And it yeah. seems like there's yeah. more and more all the time. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't really have any idea or comprehension of, are we moving towards it or further away from it? I don't, I, I really don't have a, a, a good, a good take on that. Um, and maybe we never do. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I guess, uh, I shouldn't say that it's inevitable. I said that earlier. I shouldn't have said that. Um, I think it's a possibility. And I can understand, uh, I guess I can see kind of both ways where things like the internet could bring us more together. But at the same time, I think they can also uh, push us apart, actually. And so I, I don't, I, I know that I said that earlier. I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I don't think that any political outcome is a guarantee, including a one world government. So I, I shouldn't have said that it's a, it's a guarantee. Um, Sorry, we forgive you. It's okay. But uh, I, I do think that in that framework, if that were the case, that it would warrant having a different discussion on nuclear weapons for the possibility of having to fight aliens. I mean, that's, I think that that's a legitimate concern actually. Um, I don't think it's uh, anywhere near my top hundred problems it's probably on the you know number billion or something but if we're talking you know to me this conversation is you know we're talking thousands and thousands of years into the future um you know i, I don't want to take anything off the table in that kind of conversation uh but with with where i am now in terms of modern politics where we definitely do not have a one world government or i think very far from having a one world government in that framework in that conversation i think the risk of nuclear weapons being used accidentally or falling into the hands of a terrorist group or whatever other scenario comes into play, it's too high a risk. And we don't, we don't have the buffer to learn from that mistake. And so in that world, in that framework, I think the target number should be zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's tough because when you talk about persuasion and you talk about deal making, having leverage is one of the most important things. Yeah. And, being a nuclear entity, having nuclear powers is a, uh, that's a lot of leverage to, to voluntarily give up. Especially if you're a small country, that's all that you have. Yeah. Look at Israel. Like that's probably arguably the only reason Israel still exists today is because of their, their arsenal. Look at North Korea. Yeah. I mean, ask really, and everybody asks themselves that question. How would America approach North Korea differently if North Korea didn't have a credible nuclear threat? I think they would have a regime change. <laughs> How would they be right now? Um, I don't argue that, that, that that's good for people in North Korea. I'm not, but I, I'm just saying, really, that's a conversation to have. I mean, people, you know, to, to kind of give the other argument against me, uh, Michael Schellenberger, who is a very much a, a, a pro-nuclear energy advocate, uh, argues, and I think uh, 
persuasively doesn't change my mind, but I understand the points he's making, that nuclear weapons are actually weapons of peace, that they prevent war from occurring, and that in this kind of buying into the idea of mutually assured destruction and the idea that, look, when you're a weaker nation, if you, if you join the nuclear club, other people have to leave you alone because you can punch way above your weight class. As, as somebody in my spot arguing against nuclear weapons, I have to take that argument seriously. I mean, really, I do. I can't ignore it. I think it's a good point. And so when you make up Israel is another good example of that. Uh, but I, I think even North Korea is a good example of that, too. I think, you know, they, in, in a way, force us to the negotiating table by posing a nuclear threat. I mean, also just by posing a military threat to South Korea as well. I mean, there's obviously high stakes involved with this. Um, so, I mean, but that goes into the idea of force being leveraged, you know, of course, and it is, it's an important point to make. I think that is an important rebuttal to arguing for no nuclear weapons. And so the question is, does that pro override the cons? I would argue no, but I could understand somebody from Israel saying, fuck you, uh, I don't agree with you, and they help us. And I would have to say, fair point. <laughs> yeah, like, touche. <laughs> yep. 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 Okay. So we're, all, we're, all, we're all done for. No, I'm kidding. Like I said, I, I think it's a real problem. It's a serious problem. I think it's one that our generation, people that are your age or my age, we don't really have any connection to. We didn't go through the Cuban Missile Crisis. We didn't go through World War II. We feel removed from it. We are not removed from it. We are living in it still. I mean, I, I really do think that we are still living in the nuclear age. I think it's dumb to pretend that we are not. And from that perspective, um, whether we decide to keep them or to not keep them, we need to be making sure that we're using the right faculty for approaching the conversation. I would say that the two things that everybody needs to have, whether you're pro or con nuclear weapon, you need to have understand the rules of influence for how you're approaching the topic, but then also understand some of the ideas from Nassim Taleb and the ideas of black swans and the idea that these big events in history that are unexpected have tremendous impact. You have to have both of those in the conversation to have an effective conversation about nuclear weapons. Yeah, and and I know that we said that it's not a safe assumption that, to assume that the past uh, what ninety years of of peaceful nuclear equipment. Right. Right. Um, but that is somewhat reassuring that we've made it this far without. Yeah, I mean, it, it shows to me what that shows is that people don't want it. People don't want nuclear war, which is which is. A, a good thing that's yeah. a big pro yeah. like people actually so. want to live that's a big plus um and so i think we can learn that lesson from the past but we don't want to let that cause us to rest on our laurels because you know again in some cases the gun only has to go off once and so you know we can learn some things from the past but what we can never learn from the past with issues like nuclear weapons is complacency we, we can we always 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 must be on guard and always, always, always looking to improve uh, that debate and that conversation to drive toward the world that has the best chance of existing for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, on that inspirational note, <laughs> I think that might be a wrap. Do you have any yeah. more closing thoughts before signing us off? One more. Starbucks. Cups. Let's just say, let's just real quick. I don't have Starbucks one with cups? me. Starbucks cups. Okay. I don't have one with me. 
if anybody saw my Snapchat last week, um, I was consistently dripping coffee on myself. I mean, every sip, I was dripping coffee on my shirt. And I was like, what, what the hell is going on? Mm. What I realized is this. It's something that people need to pay attention to. On the Starbucks cup, they fold it in on itself or they glue it together. And there's a little bit of a bump. There's a seam. A little bit of a seam. If you have the mouth hole over that seam, there is a gap between the lid and the cup. And when you drink from it, it will drip. It will drip on your shirt. How you fix it is quite simple. Just turn the mouth hole so that it is on an area of the cup that is flush with the cup, with the lip. And really what you want to do is you want that seam to be on the other end of the mouth hole. So you want the mouth hole here and the seam here so that when you drink it, the seam is actually seeing an air gap. That's what you want. So if anybody else is drinking Starbucks and you're spilling on yourself and you're like, what the hell is going on? That is what is going on in you and me and my charming co-host, Justice Stanford. We all have the toolkit to fix that problem. Turn the mouth hole away. And on that note, we are going to close out episode number 16. Thank you for joining us. Again, follow us on Twitter. Go to our website, go to our YouTube channel, comment, like, share, follow, et cetera, et cetera. Very much. Thank you for being here. As always, I am Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.